Hey folks, my name is Spencer Clavin. I'm the author of a brand new book, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. available now wherever you get your books. And I'm really excited to be joining here on the Dr. Sky Experience, Talk Radio 77 WABC. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the exciting programming and shows that you tell us you like so much on America's incredible, iconic radio station, the crown jewel of radio, Talk Radio 77 WABC, the proud home of the Dr. Sky Experience, as we talk about amazing subjects, as you know, folks, from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, and celebrity guests in the mix, and also very proud to talk about American exceptionalism. And our close association with the good folks at Regnery bring us to a brand new author and a brand new book from this great publishing house. And in just a few moments, we'll meet Spencer Clavin. He is the author of How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. But let's set the stage before we introduce our guest about the subject matter. Western culture is in a state of crisis. Objective truth is replaced by virtual reality. Humanity by transhumanism, meaning by meaninglessness. Religion by wholehearted devotion to scientism and the Republican government by the liberal internationalist regime. But in How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises, Daily Wire podcaster and Oxford-educated classicist Spencer Clavin outlines a compelling plan for how to overcome each of these crises. And before that, let's get a little bit of a bio on our special guest. Spencer Clavin, a scholar, writer, and a podcaster, has a lifelong devotion to the great works of the principles of the West. After studying Greek and Latin, an undergraduate at Yale, he spent five years at Oxford earning his doctorate in ancient Greek literature. Now an editor at the Claremont Institute, he has written for many outlets, including the Atlantic, the Los Angeles Times, City Journal, Newsweek, the Claremont Review of Books, The Federalist, and so much more. He's proud to hail from one of America's great cities, Nashville, Tennessee, and we welcome you to the Dr. Sky Experience. Clavin, thank you very Mr. Clavin, welcome. Thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is an interesting book, and I'd really like you to set the stage. Obviously, many people out there, no matter what, what their political persuasion is, they realize that there's something wrong in the entire planetary system with humanity here, and it's a shame to talk negative. We always like to talk positive. But in your book, you bring up five easily and identifiable essential crises and I'd like you to start first off by telling us a little bit more about yourself, because the Claremont Institute, I think we've had a few guests over the 20 years that we've been doing this, but Claremont Institute, describe it in, in some detail for our listeners here on the Dr. Sky Experience. Oh, absolutely. Well, the Institute, I'm proud and grateful to say, is a think tank devoted to the recovery of the American idea. And I know that's something that's near to your heart as yes. well. You know, these founding documents that come down to us in this country, uh, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, but also the Federalist, Federalist Papers in defense of our system of government, articulating at great length the rationale for it as compared to other possible ways of doing government as compared to other countries that existed at the time, and yeah. digging really deeply into the prior history of Western philosophical and political thought. Um, these are such precious parts of our inheritance, and the Claremont Institute exists 
to put them forward, to explain them to people, and increasingly today to defend them against any number of really outlandish charges based on false or misleading accusations against the men who wrote these texts down, against the founding fathers. This is one area of many where you will hear again and again that our roots are rotten. Our past is bad. Um, the racism of this country is built into its DNA, is one way of, mm-hmm. one popular way recently of putting it in the 1619 Project. And besides being just relentlessly depressing, this idea is also incredibly arrogant and false. You know, the question that I always come up against or ask again and again when I meet with these sorts of accusations that I do all the time is, you know, who was it who taught you that all men are created equal? Who put right. the footing underneath you to criticize the founders on these terms? And of course, it was the founders themselves. It was this great tradition that they were digging into the wisdom of Athens and Jerusalem, which makes up the uh, civilization that I mean when I call the West. That wisdom is what I'm offering to people in this book because of how precious it is, because it really yes. doesn't just fall out of the sky. It, it comes from somewhere, and, and we ought to take ownership of it. Well, well said. I mean, this is a great time to discuss these problems and also solutions. And again, we like to be positive here on the Dr. Sky Experience. Again, ladies and gentlemen, our very special guest, a scholar, a podcaster, and so much more. His name is Spencer Clavin. His new book, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. He's with us here on the Dr. Sky Experience on the iconic radio station, the crown jewel of radio, as we call it. Talk Radio 77 WABC out of New York, around the nation, around the world, and probably even out in the universe. So let's describe these crises. But before we do that, your study and insight from Plato, Aristotle, the Bible, and the Founding Fathers is, I think, so compelling and so important as we explore these crises. And you also offer some very viable solutions to how people might get in check with these problems. And Hopefully, I think this book should be on everybody's uh, book list, don't you think? I mean, this is important. Wow. Thank so let's you. let's describe I... these crises. I mean, this is interesting. I'd rather you go into them instead of, you know, you're the author. The first one is, and describe the first crises in order that you have listed them in the book. I will. And maybe I'll just say at first at the outset what I mean even by the word crisis. Because mm-hmm. this is a word we throw around a lot in our news. We have a crisis in the supply chain, a crisis, a COVID crisis, you know, yes. and a lot of these things are real and, and serious problems. Uh, but when I use the word crisis, I'm actually trying to get at something a little bit deeper for people to understand what's behind a lot of this. In Greek, krino uh, is a word that means I decide or I judge. And so mm-hmm. a true crisis is a decision point, the time for choosing. And what I lay out in the book is that, you know, yes, we have all of these modern problems that are kind of coming up day by day, um, and it's hard to understand where they came from. But actually underlying that, what we're really grappling with is ancient questions, fundamental questions. And we're trying to find a way forward uh, according to those, you know, basic ideas. And so this is the first crisis, is the crisis of, of reality. Is there such a thing as true and false, or is it all just my truth? and your truth. And I argue that the only way to form a productive society is to argue that, yes, there is absolute truth, um, which leads us into this second question, which is, you know, how can we know that truth if we're living in this world of change and decay? You know, we have these bodies that break down and die, and increasingly, it seems as if people want to transcend them. The transgender movement, the transhumanist movement, which is even more extreme, this notion that we should get out of our bodies is actually very old. And I present some ancient wisdom for kind of dealing with our 
ourselves and our humanity in a saner way, understanding ourselves as embodied souls rather than just, you know, kind of divine uh, sparks dealing with these uh, uncomfortable sure. encumbrances called the body. Then we move on to these two crises, the crisis of meaning and religion, which is really where we get to the heart of the matter, because in all of this, I think we're trying to find out, is there anything that, you know, gives life meaning and direction? And a lot of our modern scientists, and I'm not talking about people that do science, people who believe that science is the full description of all the world, it's all just matter, there's nothing else. Um, There's a pervasive narrative that that's the only way to understand ourselves, but that's not enough. We don't actually believe that, we don't live that way. And so in the second part of the book, I'm talking about what, you know, what is beyond just the physical fleshly here and now. I'm arguing that the tradition which shows us uh, that, that God is worthy of worship is still the best tradition for thinking about these things. Then finally, you know, your listeners and, and you and I both uh, care a lot about the American regime. And that's what this last section is about, what to do, uh, what America was founded to be and how we can have hope for saving uh, this great nation that we are all uh, blessed to be a part of. Well, well said. And I want to jump into one of these, particularly the crisis of reality. And I yeah. found that most compelling because it kind of gives me a little jerk in the knee here, and it makes my, you know, it makes me wake up to think about a problem called virtual reality. And in the book, without stealing your thunder, sir, you go into great details about what I consider to be, in your interpretation and writing, and my interpretation, the dangers of the metaverse, and yeah. describe this because I think this can be a great thing. I mean, let's say surgeons can use this technology to even explore ways to help doing surgeries better, but you go into a much more powerful explanation and a warning, I would say, if I'm correct, about the dangers of the metaverse. Describe that in light of what Facebook has been trying to do and this whole metaverse. Uh, What say you on this? An important topic. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's so much that's good that we could do with this technology. And whenever you start talking about the dangers of digital tech or the dangers presented by this era, um, it's easy to fall into the trap of being accused of just trying to turn back time, right? Trying to unmake the future and this, this stuff is coming and there's no way out of it. But mm-hmm. what I'm proposing in the book is there's, it's one thing for technology to be advancing, um, but it's another thing for people to make a sales pitch based on that technology. Sure. And it's very telling that when we you know, started to develop the ability to create virtual reality goggles or these sorts of things, and um, mm-hmm. there was immediately this big push, this offer from a certain corner of our elite to turn this into the whole world, to just swallow up human life into a kind of imaginary space. And what I'm suggesting in the book is that proposition, that idea, that's not inevitable. It's not baked into the technology. It's something that our elites believe, which is that there is no such thing as true and false. And so it would be better if they got to choose what exists and what doesn't according to their imaginary world. And that's a very, very old proposition. I trace it back to at least the beginning of, of, you know, Greek philosophy with Socrates and his engagement with his own reality crisis when it was very fashionable back in the day to say, you know, there's no such thing as true and false, or it's all just what you perceive and what I perceive. Um, We think this sort of stuff is new, but it's very, very old. And one thing that means is that we're not alone, because in fact, people have wrestled with these issues. Socrates himself wrestled with these issues. Um, And he shows us that there's really nothing to do but uh, believe that there's something outside 
of us that is true and false, that this promise of liberation, this promise of uploading ourselves into a, a virtual reality, um, it's an old promise and it always fails because if there's no such thing as absolute truth and absolute falsehood, uh, well, then it's all just power. It's all just power politics. And that's why you start to see people fighting to control the narrative, to censor people online. It's because unless we believe in true or false, um, there's just the, the will of the stronger, as the ancients might have said. And, and that's really not a recipe for success. Um, clinging to this Socratic notion of the truth, I think, is so crucial, especially as this virtual reality tech becomes uh, more and more advanced. Spencer Clavins, our guest today here on the Dr. Sky Experience on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Proud to call him a friend here. He's a scholar, writer, and a podcaster. And most important, it's a brand new regnary book that we recommend, ladies and gentlemen. You go out there to deep soul search on these very very topics that we're talking about today. The book is entitled How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom, Four, Five, Modern Crises. I wanted to see if you could give us a better understanding of the term transhumanism. I've heard many other people explain this to me, some rushed and some so detailed that, not to put us to sleep, but your interpretation of transhumanism and, and what are the dangers that you might see there as you apply some of the knowledge that you have, the great knowledge, from the, uh, you know, our ancestors like Plato, Aristotle, and so many others. Talk about transhumanism. Sure. Yeah, I think it's something which, this is another good example of one of those things that seems to just come out of nowhere, right? Came out of left field. A lot of people I talk to think, oh man, you know, even just transgenderism, right? This kind of sudden uptick in young people feeling discomfort with their uh, biological sex, feeling like they want to do all sorts of uh, really horrible things to their, their bodies, to change their bodies. Um, you know, it's easy to feel like this is kind of from out of nowhere. But if you start to dig into the philosophical roots of it, um, you find once again that we're actually up against a very ancient problem. That's the problem of the body and the soul. You know, they teach kids now in school, they have, you know, a biological, they have a body, but then they have something called a gender identity. And this is like sort of a floating abstract entity sure. uh, that lives outside of their bodies and they need to kind of change their bodies to conform to it. Um, that idea is very, very old. It goes back at least to the Neoplatonists, uh, who were a kind of branch of philosophy after Plato, um, who basically said that, you know, the body is just a burden or an accident, uh, and where we really live is in this pure space of the divine, the all, the good, the true. Um, what I show in the book is that this has always failed. This is a bad idea, and it always ends us up doing horrible things to ourselves in the attempt to get out of, to crawl out of our, our bodies. Now. Right. We're still doing that now, um, and we're doing it in this kind of transgenderism, you know, craze. But that transgenderism craze itself kind of points onwards to this bigger idea, which is transhumanism. And that is the notion that our technology can help us to get past our humanity, that our humanity is kind of outdated, our bodies are, are a burden, and we need to update ourselves using all this different kind of tech or even just upload ourselves into the cloud. So we'll live in a pure space. And since this is an old idea, it has an old solution. And that is, they know we're not actually, you know, ghosts in the machine. We're not just these kind of floating mm -hmm. abstractions. Um, what we are is embodied souls. This is this ancient Greek concept referred to as hylomorphism, meaning form in matter. Um, and whereas, you know, transgenderism, transhumanism take us out of ourselves, hylomorphism says, no, you are, your body is not an accident and your soul is not an illusion. The two are wed together as one. They are fused. 
um, and the body is the language in which the soul is expressed. This is a much, much saner way for understanding ourselves, even as the technology develops. Um, it will help us to be healthier and to regard ourselves with, with more peace uh, rather than this endless craze for transgenderism and transhumanism. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. As you've explained, uh, we've explained briefly in your bio, you spent five years at Oxford University and earned a doctorate in ancient Greek literature. So you're the right person to ask this, and I'd certainly like to do that. With the ancient thinkers out there, who would you think is one of those ancient thinkers that really comes closest in all ways possible? I mean, maybe this is too, too difficult a question to answer because there's so much material out there. But who strikes you as probably one of the best of all examples to study and learn about what's going on in this world, and describe that person to us uh, as one of the ancient scholars. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's not quite antiquity, but I think a lot about Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, the medieval mm-hmm. Christian saint. Um, these sure. days, especially, you know, as different challenges present themselves, different thinkers become more urgent, more important. And Aquinas is somebody that comes up for me again and again. Um, he's the author most famously of the Summa Theologica, which is this big dictionary encyclopedia of, as he says, you know, all matters and questions pertaining to the Christian faith. And it's, I think a lot of people get scared off by that because they think you have to read it from cover to cover. You really don't. You know, Aquinas is a great guy to go to for answers. And one reason he's great is because he was up against this question that the church had had to face for a while which is what does, you know, pagan wisdom, what can Greek philosophy contribute to the traditions of Jerusalem? Um, And he does this wonderful job of marrying these two pillars of our civilization, the kind of religious side of things, if you like, the, you know, the scriptures and the wisdom literature of uh, Judaism and Christianity, and bringing them together, meeting them with people like Aristotle, which is where I got that whole, you know, hylomorphism thing, this kind of really rich way of thinking about humanity. Um, and fusing those two things together, I think, is, is a beautiful thing that Aquinas does, and it helps ground us, you know, as we feel so disoriented. Um, Aquinas kind of stands in this unique place in the tradition uh, between Athens and Jerusalem, who can, and he can show us that we can take ownership of these traditions, that they are not just kind of outdated. We come from somewhere. These ideas don't fall out of the sky. They have a history and a tradition, and that tradition is ours. He passes it along to us, just as so many other great thinkers do. So there's, of course, a lot of people in the book that I refer to, but Aquinas is a great one to, to think about these days. Well said. Now, I know in college, I remember taking classes in philosophy, and we studied very briefly, albeit not like yourself, the as we describe these ancient scholars. But I remember as an astronomer, we studied Ptolemy in the book called The Almagest or The Almagestine. But are, have many of these, I mean, maybe I'm a little off subject here, have many of these great works, I know there was a big fire in Alexandria a long time ago when we lost a lot of material. So are some of the things that you're talking about relevant to these particular scholars that we may have lost over time? And imagine if we did lose it, just how more impacting they would be from their already great uh, treatises and, and books themselves. What, what say you on that? Yeah, it's quite something to think about, isn't it? I mean, the fire at Alexandria, the Library of Alexandria is the most famous 
mm-hmm. uh, part of this, but there are all sorts of terrible losses in, in history, manuscripts that didn't get passed forward, works that were lost. Um, I mean, you mentioned Ptolemy and, you know, the kind of role that, that leads on to kind of the role that some of the medieval Arabic scholars had in preserving yes. some of these texts, you know, while the West was, uh, you know, struggling and, and suffering its own kind of difficulties. And, you know, there are so many things that look, at least from a secular perspective, like accidents of history. So many uh, tragedies, for instance, that we'd love to have from ancient Greece, whereas we only have a small handful, about 30 uh, plays that come down from the classical period um, from three authors. And just think of the wealth of things that we could have, you know. But one thing that that tells me, and it's kind of a weirdly comforting thought, is that this grand tradition, even as beautiful as it is, even as magnificent as these texts, are and uh, you know they have so much to guide us. Um, they're always being rescued. We're always up against the world. The world is always falling apart. And many of these texts were rescued from the flames, you know, and and by people who weren't even sure if they were going to live to see tomorrow. You know, in the book I talk about Saint Jerome, who both watches the fall of Rome, but also translates the Bible into Latin. Um, you know, carrying that language forward as kind of the cornerstone of Christianity in the West. And it's very heartening and encouraging to me to think, you know, even though our problems may be very dire, um, we are part of a long tradition of carrying that flame through difficult and stormy circumstances. Um, We're not alone in that either. Well, this is interesting. In the few more moments we have with you, we could go on for hours here. Fascinating subject. Again, our very special guest on the Dr. Scry Experience today, Spencer Clavin, a scholar, writer, and podcaster. And as you've heard, and we'll repeat many times during the interview, a brand new regnery book entitled How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. And let's get back to those crises. As you describe these crises, many of the things that I'd like to know about, in your opinion, is why have we suddenly become so partisan? I mean, this is a question that, mm. you know, goes all across the board. I mean, it's, it's so sad, uh, the way we see things today, politically especially. Yes, I think that's a good example. Yeah, something we could talk about for a long time, there is, you know, at least one thing that we can point to uh, that leads to this in part, and that is the, you know, Marxist turn, the cultural Marxist turn of the new left. Um, and I talk about this in the regime crisis section of the book. You know, when the when Marxist scholars and thinkers in Europe realized that Americans would never be radicalized economically, because we had this, at the time, this strong middle class, we weren't going to be turned against one another out of economic resentments. Um, instead, they turned to identifying uh, social resentments, especially race, right? I mean, this is where you mm-hmm. get, these thinkers are where you get terms like white privilege. Uh, it comes from a guy, Noel Ignatiev, as part of this you know, whole coterie of Marxist thinkers. Um, and the idea that we were going to be not fellow Americans, but members of tribes that were dead set against one another by class interest, um, that really gets entrenched during this time. And you can see it now. I mean, this is why I argue in the book that identity politics really is poison to our republic. It undermakes the bonds of affection that are supposed to uh, bind us together. And that means that those bonds of affection are what we have to recover. I mean, when you talk about people as if they were a disease, you know, as Joe Biden said, we have a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Or when you say that, you know, races can never get along because there's inherent racism in our DNA. Um, you're really pouring acid onto the pies that bind. Um, what, the antidote for this is what the Greeks called philia, friendship, civic mm-hmm. love. It's an act of love to get up in the morning and work together with your neighbor to face the problems in front of you. Um, 
face-to-face interaction, person-to-person in neighbors. We're seeing a lot of it in some of these communities. I know out here in Nashville, we're seeing it also in Florida. You know, that's sure. really heartening, and it is the way forward if we're going to get uh, over this poison. Wow. Fascinating story here in these major crises that you, you provide solutions. So let's talk about the old adage, if you fail to study history, you're doomed to repeat it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's pretty much an undercurrent of what I'm hearing right. throughout this particular interview. But if you had to sum up your book to the listening audience out there, what would you say? I mean, you, you've done a beautiful job, in my opinion, of identifying the five main crises that you see. But give us more of the direct connection of how this book is useful for individuals out there so that they may transform their world or feel hope instead of despair. And as I like to say always on this particular podcast, the Dr. Sky Experience, we want to come from the positivity and we wouldn't be able to do this if it wasn't for our producer, Richard Dugan, who we thank in the background. But you have the floor, sir, as we uh, sadly have to conclude this in just a few more moments. But I'm always excited, and I always ask this for the guests that we really like. Would you be willing to come back at a future time to explore this in, in a much bigger uh, opportunity here and much deeper with the length of questions? Oh, I would be absolutely delighted. It's been such a pleasure, and I'm glad that you've brought us to this point to conclude, because mm-hmm. this is one thing that's really close to my heart. You know, um, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. I think mm-hmm. there are, there's enough of that out there already, and the truth is we don't know the future. And so if our hope is based on a certainty that everything is going to go right, Um, then it will be a a fragile kind of hope. But there is a deeper form of hope. Um, There's a form of hope that doesn't come out of telling the future or reading the tea leaves, um, but but comes from studying history and understanding that we are inheritors of a long and resilient tradition. When Cicero, the great Roman statesman, had to excuse himself from public life in Rome because it was becoming too dangerous for him. Uh, He said he was going to write, create a republic in letters, that he was going to form this kind of theoretical basis for believing in in Republican government. Now, in the short term, Cicero may have failed. I mean, the republic did end, and he was one of the victims of the new regime. But we are living today in his legacy, at least in part. It was John Adams who poured over Cicero's speeches and gave his own speech in defense of our Declaration of Independence. It's not a matter of indifference what happens tomorrow. We should invest ourselves deeply in in the political fights of the day. There's no question. But we are carriers of a light that goes further and deeper than just what happens in politics today or tomorrow. We have no room for despair. What we have is a job to do, and that's to wake up and seek the true, the good, and the beautiful in the city where we find ourselves. That will be enough. Absolutely. i got to ask this final question here. This one always has bothered me. From all the great scholars that you talk about and all the great writings, and particularly the Roman Empire, with all the great wisdom that they had, what was, in your opinion, the fall of the Roman Empire? What was the causation, in your opinion? One who studied this probably much better than most people we would talk to. I believe the old story that it was overextension and hubris. I think those two things together brought the Roman Empire down. Um, I think that, you know, the Republic, which was this perpetual motion machine, this carefully calibrated and designed set of institutions mm-hmm. uh, to keep the Romans together, to keep the different social classes and political classes working together. Um, it was it was beautifully conceived and beautifully executed for a long time. But in some sense, it became a victim of its own success as they began expanding. And as they began to forget that citizenship, Roman citizenship wasn't just a benefit package. It wasn't just something that you know, you kind of got all these goodies from the state. It was actually a set of moral responsibilities. 
Um, and that's, I think, a lesson that we can take as well. American citizenship is um, a beautiful gift. It's winning the lottery in a lot of ways but to yes. be born an American citizen. Um, but that doesn't mean it comes without any sort of responsibilities. We do have a role to play in this nation. And, you know, we are handed not just the vote, but life within this civilization, you know, to get up every morning and go out into our neighbors and to our neighborhoods and, you know, to actually face the human-sized problems that face us together. Um, that's not an option. That's our uh, role. It's our calling. It's a gift, but it's also a responsibility. So I think uh, remembering that would be something we could draw from, from the fall of Rome. Interesting. And relating to the reality crisis, a great quote here, and if you don't mind me taking the liberty, quote, we control matter because we control the mind. Reality is inside the skull. You must get rid of those 19th century ideas about the laws of nature. We make the laws of nature. End quote from the great George Orwell, from a prolific book that everybody has read in high school, and hopefully they can remember it, 1984. Spencer, I want to thank you for your time today. Again, we appreciate your time here on the very interesting show that people tell us, and we're so proud to do it. The Dr. Sky Experience, proudly here on America's number one main radio station, Talk Radio 77 WABC out of New York, around the nation, around the world, and probably even out of the universe, the crown jewel of radio, iconic Talk Radio 77 WABC. And please stay on the line as we go to our hard break here. We'd love to have you back again. Again, the book, ladies and gentlemen, a must-have and a must-read book. This is, in our opinion, and many others, great reviews, How to Save the West. Ancient Wisdom by Modern Pricings. Dr. Clavin, thank you. You've been a great guest, and we look forward to talking with you soon. It was a delight. Thanks so much for having me on.